Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The Supreme Court recently began a new term, the first with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. There are a number of important cases on the docket, and we've invited Megan Hatcher-Mays, Director of Democracy at Indivisible and part of the Unrig the Courts Coalition, onto the podcast to discuss what to expect and efforts to reform the court. Now to a scene and exclusive, the Supreme Court taking unprecedented steps to uncover who leaked the draft opinion of what will be a landmark decision on abortion rights. This court has lost legitimacy. They have burned whatever legitimacy they may still have had after their gun decision, after their voting decision, after their union decision. They just took the last of it and set a torch to it. We have a a crisis at the Supreme Court, a crisis of legitimacy. In the aftermath of several controversial decisions, some lawmakers say it's time to reform the Supreme Court. They want to pass a law to expand the number of justices on the high court. Hi, my name is Megan Hatcher-Mays. I'm the director of democracy policy at Indivisible, and we're going to add four seats to the Supreme Court. Sorry, not sorry. Um, Megan, thank you so much for being here. Before we dive in, will you tell our listeners a bit about who you are and the work that you do with Indivisible? Yeah, of course. I always start by saying I'm from Seattle, Washington, third generation native of Seattle, Washington. I'm a lawyer. And yeah, now I work on democracy policy. So lots of voting rights to the extent that we can protect what we've still got and expand them where we need to. That also involves the courts. The courts are a critical part of a functioning democracy. And we hear from our activists all the time that our democracy is the most important thing to them, that fighting to have an inclusive multiracial democracy is the most important thing. That's what gets our folks out of bed every morning. And so that's what we've been fighting to do since 2017, when Indivisible was first launched, was to really give people advice, how to you know talk to their members of Congress, how to advocate for legislation that they wanted. And we're going to keep doing that until we build up this democracy that works for everybody. I think the most obvious question to start with, because we're hearing so much about our democracy, what, in your opinion, in the opinion of all of the scholars, the constitutionalists, the, all the people, what is the state of our democracy right now? We are in a situation now where Republicans, especially at the state level, have identified a lot of vulnerabilities in our election infrastructure. 
And they're taking advantage of those vulnerabilities to maximize their opportunities to gain power and keep power, even though their ideas are generally pretty unpopular. So the issues that Republicans run on tend to be stuff that people don't really like that much, like tax breaks for wealthy corporations and nationwide abortion bans, things like that. But they're able to keep power because they have shrunk the universe of people who can easily participate in democracy. You see it in places like Georgia, who passed a law just last year that makes it easier for the governor to get rid of election officials in counties that are heavily democratic. Texas, North Carolina, all these places are passing pieces of legislation that make it more difficult, not just to vote, but make it easier for state legislatures to overturn election outcomes. So when that happens, it means that your country is skating on very thin democratic ice, little d democratic ice. Um, And you could really fall through if the American people lose faith that the way that we elect people, the way that our country runs is no longer legitimate. You mentioned that the activists that you work with, the issue that they care most about is democracy. How do we get the people who are going into the supermarket and trying to feed a family of four and go to the checkout counter and don't have enough money to put food on the table? How do we get them to care about democracy? How do we fight the inflation messaging and the gas price messaging? How do we get them to step out of their own dire situations to connect to the bigger picture of democracy and to vote based on that and not based on how to put food on the table? Yeah, I think progressives and Democrats, we all need to do a better job of explaining how these things happen. Why is it the case that CEOs of companies are making hand over fist during a pandemic, but the people who actually work for these companies don't and struggle really to make life better for themselves and for their families? It's not because Joe Biden is pulling the strings in a secret room somewhere on inflation. It's because Republicans, they're ushering a lot of the wealth to the top and taking it away from the bottom. And I don't know that Democrats have successfully, up until pretty recently, made a compelling case for why progressives are a party for the people, whereas Republicans kind of pass these laws that make life really good for the various yacht owners in the country. But these things are all really interconnected. I think once you get people to understand that these kitchen table issues are all fundamentally about democracy and your ability to participate in democracy, then you can start to make those connections. And I think that's true for lots of other issues too, like abortion, workplace democracy, like labor rights, worker organizing, those sorts of things. But it's not a coincidence that Republicans are chipping away at all of those personal freedoms at the same time they're chipping away at your ability to vote. Because the stuff that they want to do involves amassing as much power as possible. A nationwide abortion ban, incredibly unpopular. But if they can make you think that they're the party that's going to turn things around on inflation, which they're not, but if they can make you think that, then they can continue to amass power and, while they're doing that, chip away at your ability to vote. So you can't really change things. What are your expectations in terms of the dilution of voting rights for minorities and the other threats to voting rights with this court this year? 
Yeah, I mean, it's existential. And I think what you said initially is exactly correct, which is this is not the beginning of a process. This is a process that began with Shelby County. It began with Citizens United. It began with Brnovich two years ago when Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was circumscribed. So this is really what's left of a Voting Rights Act that has been eviscerated by this court. I just think people are sick of the idea of politics, right? Just this idea that seems so much bigger than person in Flint, Michigan that lost jobs or the person in Mississippi that doesn't have clean water. And I think we need to just remind people that politics, and I said this on a panel recently and everyone was like, I don't know about that. But politics is personal. And I think when we make that connection, that the result of the politics of it has personal consequences. And I think we've just gotten so far away from that. And it's all just about bitching at each other, bitching at the other side, and the big lie, and how fundamentally dangerous that is not only to our political structure, but also to independent people's lives. It feels like we never really connect the dots. It is so much about partisanship and the courts, especially the Supreme Court, they're supposed to be above partisanship, right? Like, how the fuck did that get so broken? Oh, well, I'll tell you. So look, so I think folks on the left tend to think of the court as an institution that expands constitutional rights to people who are maybe not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution itself. So the Supreme Court has been thought of as an institution that grants rights to marginalized folks, women, people of color. But that was really only true about the Supreme Court for about 50 years. (laughs) And we've, I think, completely and officially moved out of that era where the Supreme Court is an institution that grants rights. It does not do that anymore. The goal now is to shrink rights back down to only those that were explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, which are land-owning white men. I know it sounds like a cliche at this point, but it's true. It is true. But basically how this started was, um, a lot of people think it started in 1973 after Roe v. Wade, which I think is right. But I think you could go back even further and look at Brown v. Board. Court said, you need to desegregate public schools and some changes need to be made because this is discrimination on the basis of race. So you need to desegregate public schools. Then fast forward to 1973, the Supreme Court says, hey, people who can get pregnant have a constitutional right to terminate. They have a right to make decisions about their bodily autonomy. So you had a bunch of conservatives looking around at each other, saying to themselves and to each other, Supreme Court is granting rights to people who we don't think should have equal rights under the law. So we need to mobilize, raise a bunch of money, and create a system that takes the courts and turns them into not just a conservative institution, but a partisan one, one that will grant wins to one political party over another. And so back in the early 1980s, they founded an organization called the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society was the group that came up with the term originalism, which a lot of people think is some sort of real, actual term. It's just made up. I am the same age as the term originalism. But basically, back then, post-civil rights movement, post-civil rights era, these white guys that got together to create the Federalist Society said, oh, we should find a nice way to say that we want to revoke constitutional rights from Black people, people of color and women, because that would be rude to just say it like that. So they came up with originalism. So whatever Thomas Jefferson was thinking when he wrote it, and effectively, that's what it does. It shrinks constitutional rights back down, just like the core group of people who wrote the Constitution in the first place. 
Um, and they've been horrifyingly successful in this attempt. They've raised millions and millions of dollars. They've been an integral part of the conservative project to take over the courts. And were these religious white men or were they just white men that then looked to Christianity and said, you know what, we we're going to adopt that because everything that the Christian right, extreme Christian right is saying, we can use that to benefit our agenda. For what it's worth, the very first faculty advisor for the Federalist Society was Antonin Scalia, who later became a Supreme Court justice. He was very legitimately a very devout Catholic. So he genuinely believed a lot of these religious dogmas about abortion and divorce and gay marriage and gay rights. He genuinely believed those things. But there were a lot of people who saw an opportunity to create a wedge where there hadn't been one before. Because after Roe v. Wade, it wasn't an immediate effect where the whole country was like, oh no, we have to overturn Roe v. Wade and ban abortion nationwide. It is my profound honor to be the first president in history to attend the March for Life. We're here for a very simple reason, to defend the right of every child, born and unborn, to fulfill their God-given potential. Actually, they had started to do the March for Life back in 1974, and they weren't that well attended at the time, because a lot of evangelical Christians said, well, that's really a Catholic thing. Our denomination doesn't really care that much about abortion. It became a political wedge issue that I think Republicans very opportunistically leaned into, whether they genuinely believed that abortion was immoral or not. So it was both. And this is a 50-year project on the part of the right to really install as many, not just conservative, but Republican judges and justices on the Supreme Court and on the lower courts as well. And they've done it. They've been really successful. And I think we find ourselves in the situation we are today where the court, led by John Roberts, who prior to becoming a justice, had dedicated his career to gutting the Voting Rights Act. He becomes the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And what do you know? In 2013, they did. They did gut the Voting Rights Act. Then they did it again in 2021. And they're poised to do it again this year as well, this term. So whatever's left of the VRA is now on the chopping block in front of the court too. That's been the goal from the beginning, in addition to overturning Roe v. Wade, which they obviously did this past June. I want to just take a good look at the current Supreme Court term. First of all, obviously, it's the first term where Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson is on the bench. So what do you think is happening in the chambers, like right now, behind closed doors? I think the Supreme Court is a little C conservative institution, which means that you don't become a Supreme Court justice by being a particularly spicy individual, like in your personal life. So I think that they're all very professional and very pleasant to one another. But we have seen some fights spill out into the public view, which is unusual for the Supreme Court. So we've seen Alito basically make comments that he basically denounced his colleague, Elena Kagan. Justice Kagan had said that she was really worried that the court was losing its legitimacy because of the way that decisions are being made at the court. These decisions are not being made because of, you know, it's not like we disagree about these things because we just have a disagreement about legal ideology or jurisprudence. These decisions are being made based on like political calculations. Gagan had said that affects the court's legitimacy when you put out a statement or a decision that says 
women do not have a constitutional right to an abortion, that affects the court's legitimacy, which is true. The court is the least popular it's ever been. Not just my favorite color is red and John Roberts's favorite color is green. That's not why. It's because they're revoking people's constitutional rights. Anyway, Justice Alito puts out a statement saying the fact that Kagan said that, the fact that Kagan made that statement is what's undermining the legitimacy in the court, not his behavior. Mm. So those, some of those fights have started to spill out into public, which again is very unusual for the Supreme Court. And Trump was able to appoint three justices, which is only one more justice than he had impeachments. Let's unpack that. What will the lasting impact of that alone, of those impeachments, be? I mean, I think that the totality of this whole situation really is what is undermining the public's trust in the court. The court only works to the extent that we all acknowledge its authority, right? And people stop respecting your authority when you start causing physical and emotional and legal damage to people. And that's what's happening. And I think it's not just that Trump had been impeached because George W. Bush also installed two very bad Supreme Court justices. The concern is that we think of the court as being an arbiter of justice, but also a protector of democracy. And so if you are appointed by somebody who very clearly does not care about democracy, has no loyalty or fealty to the Constitution or loyalty to this country or how it works, then that's going to do some damage for the job that person gave you. So that's been the concern among these justices. And I think that it has been pretty well borne out. Sure, they have sided against Trump, but Other than that, the bigger project of protecting our democracy is at risk because of the people on the Supreme Court. I want to talk about that particular case that's on the docket this term, which is Moore versus Harper, which deals with basically election oversight, right? Which is just horrifying. First of all, just give my audience a bit of background on the case. This one is really scary. A case before the Supreme Court, Moore v. Harper could radically reshape presidential and congressional elections in this country. At the heart of the case is a controversial and disputed legal theory that claims the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures almost unchecked power over how federal elections are run. This is the thing, I think, one of the many cases that keeps me up at night. It's called Moore v. Harper, like you said. What's at issue in this case is a legal theory called the independent state legislature theory. Some people call it the independent state legislature doctrine. I do not call it that because it's not a doctrine. It is a theory and it's fake and it's made up. But basically what this theory says is the only body of people in a state who has any say over how an election is administered is the state legislature. Only the state legislature can decide. This theory holds that state courts, and possibly not even the governor, have the authority, state courts do not have the authority to overturn voting laws or election laws that are passed by the state legislature, even if those election laws blatantly violate the state's constitution. They could be as off-the-wall unconstitutional as you want. If the state legislature passes it, it's fine. There can be no court oversight at the state level over whether or not the law is constitutionally valid. And in some cases, the state legislature could revoke the governor's ability to veto unconstitutional election or voting laws. 
So just break that down, like the potential impacts of that decision for people and their personal lives. What does it mean? It could very easily mean that your state legislature can decide who wins the election in your state, whether your state votes for that person or not. And this is very scary because the majority of state legislatures are controlled by Republicans. Of course, not every Republican is a MAGA GOP, I guess. I think most of them at least are fine with it, even if they're not blatantly MAGA. But there are a lot of state legislatures who are run by extreme MAGA Republicans. So think of a state like Arizona or Georgia or Texas or wherever, where they have super majorities in the state legislature. The state legislature could give themselves the power to completely overturn a statewide election if they don't like the results. And no state court could weigh in on whether or not that was unconstitutional. It could be the case that a governor in a situation couldn't do anything about it either. So if the Supreme Court adopts this theory as legitimate, it would cause havoc in federal elections across the country. So it affects not just elections, by the way, it affects congressional maps, which are already pretty terribly gerrymandered. It affects state legislative maps. It will do severe damage to our elections, to election outcomes, to the public's faith that election outcomes are legitimate and valid. For those who are paying attention to that fake elector thing where Trump's lawyers were trying to get state officials in, in a handful of states to create a second slate of electors to send to Congress to create a dispute between the legitimate slate of electors and the fake electors, you could find yourself in a situation, if the Supreme Court does adopt this theory, the independent state legislature theory, where the fake electors would be adopted, sent to Congress, and even if your state goes for Biden, say, in 2024, your state legislature could hand the state's electors to Trump instead. We know for a fact that in different situations, in different contexts, four of the Supreme Court justices have expressed support for this idea. So they only need one more to go along with it for it to be adopted. And based on the partisan rulings from this Supreme Court, how do you think it's going to go? It's hard to predict. My heart tends to always assume the worst when it comes to this. And every case that they've ruled on that has related to our democracy, always, with this constellation of justices, has always gone in favor of Republicans. So if it's like a badly drawn congressional map, they'll strike it down if it favors Democrats, but keep it if it favors Republicans. It's very kind of obvious. But this theory is so wild. It's unnecessarily wild. Republicans already have a lot of power. Um, and this feels like possibly a step too far that it's hard to say that Republican justices would go along with it. I don't want to give them too much credit, though. But here's what I will say. As much as I dislike all of the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, like on a visceral level, they are acutely aware of their reputations and they are like I said, this is the least popular Supreme Court in history. We're going to start with the Supreme Court's new term. It begins Monday. That's right. A series of decisions from its last term, most notably the one to overturn Roe v. Wade, sent public approval of the court to its lowest rating ever, according to NBC News polling. So I think they're willing to take the hit on their reputation for certain issues. But this feels like possibly, maybe, and hopefully, one of those things where it's not worth the reputational risk to themselves or to the court as an institution when they could very well just 
continue what they have been doing, which is gutting the Voting Rights Act, making it more difficult for people to vote without going full bore authoritarian. On the other hand, they're pretty bad people. And what are the other cases that are important that are on the docket this term? Anything that we should be aware of? Yeah. So there's another case called Milligan. That one's out of Alabama. That one's about congressional maps. I just referenced it. Basically, again, the state drew pretty blatantly unconstitutional maps that diluted the political power of Black people in the state of Alabama. There should be, based on the demographics of that state, there should be at least two majority Black congressional districts in that state. And there's only one because they diluted the political power of voters in that state. Even Trump judges at the lower court level said, you guys, you have to redraw these maps. And the Supreme Court, without even hearing a briefing on the case, reached past the lower court and said, nope, no, you don't. It's too close to the election to redraw the maps. We'll eventually hear a case on this later, but for now, these maps have to stand. This was decided back in January, and that was the farthest away, I think, that the court had ever said it was too close to an election to make changes. So it was 10 months away. There was plenty of time to redraw them, is what I'm saying. So that case is pending. There was, speaking of Katanji Brown-Jackson, she was great during oral arguments on that case. She was talking about the need for race-conscious decisions. That's why we have the 14th and 15th Amendments. They were very specifically adopted to protect the political power of Black people and people of color in this country. So she's just been a really fabulous addition to the Supreme Court. We've also got a case about the Clean Water Act. The court had heard a case last term about the Clean Air Act and basically said the EPA doesn't really have much authority to regulate clean air. So they might do the same thing with water, which is unfortunate. Um, And then there's a bunch of really bad cases, but the other one that really sticks out, or there's two more that stick out in my mind. One is about affirmative action, uh, race-conscious admissions in higher education. That's very likely to be struck down. It's two different cases. One is from UNC, North Carolina, and the others at Harvard. Basically, very likely that the Supreme Court will prohibit the use of race-conscious admissions in higher education will be devastating for applicants of color. The last one is not the last one. There's a bunch of cases pending, but the last one I think is probably the scariest is this case about a web designer who does not want to have to make websites for gay people. A Colorado-based web designer is suing the state because she doesn't want to put together wedding services for same-sex couples. Now, it is unclear if a same-sex couple ever actually asked for her assistance. Either way, the U.S. Supreme Court is listening to her claims, at least as far as they apply to the issue of free speech. No gay person has asked this web designer to make a website for them, but he wants to. <laughs> he wants the Supreme Court to jump in and say, you don't have to provide services to people if you have a, a religious objection to their quote-unquote lifestyle. So this is kind of a continuation of some of the gay marriage bakery cases, but it could very well result in a ruling that says that you can discriminate against people, any type of person you want. It's unfathomable to me that our country 
has slipped so far. And I do want to say that I'm so grateful to you and the coalition that you work with called Unrig the Courts. Please tell us what you do. Tell us how we can help. Yeah, so it is really exhausting. But this is one of those issues where despite the fact that the hill we're trying to climb is like the steepest hill in the world, it's like the Mount Everest of issues, it, there's no other option but to add seats to the Supreme Court. We have to expand the Supreme Court if we want to protect the rights that we've still got and restore the ones that we've lost. The only way to do that is to expand the court. So the coalition that we work with, the Unrig the Courts Coalition, is singularly dedicated to getting a court expansion bill passed in Congress. Obviously, very difficult given the makeup of Congress at the moment. And obviously things might become more complicated for us after the midterms too. But there's a bill pending in Congress. It's called the Judiciary Act. It would add four seats to the Supreme Court. Right now, we're in a situation where the justices themselves are behaving like a threat to our democracy. They don't have to follow an ethics code. I really don't say that lightly. And I think like a lot of court expansion advocates, it's not like I'm a lawyer too. I think that the court system is should be sacred, but the way they're treating it isn't. And so they've really left us with no choice but to add seats to the Supreme Court. That's actually, all things considered, the smallest reform we could make given the threats that we're up against. So that's the goal. The goal is to add four seats to the Supreme Court. It's going to be difficult. And what do you say to people who insist that the process is actually working? as it's intended, in like nominating and confirming justices and that changing the process is a power grab within itself. The power grab already happened. I really need people to understand that. A lot of people say, oh yeah, but won't we get into a tit for tat? Republicans will do this if Democrats do this. It's like, we're already there. We're already in it. We're already in the doom loop when it comes to the Supreme Court. Now, Justice Scalia died unexpectedly uh, in February 2016 at a ranch in Texas where he was on a hunting trip. Um, and of course, because he died in February 26, 2016, that means that Barack Obama was president. The Republicans had control of the Senate, but the Democratic president held the White House. Within one hour of the announcement of Justice Scalia's passing in February 2016, the Republican leader in the Senate, the majority leader, Senator McConnell, issued this statement. He said, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. They have spent 50 years trying to achieve this goal to take away abortion rights from people and to make life more difficult for other marginalized groups. And they're not going to stop. There's no oversight over what they do. There's no consequence. There's no political consequences for the stuff that they do. All we can do is protect the institution, protect ourselves by restoring some semblance of legitimacy to the court. And the best way to do that is to add four seats. It'll be hard, but it's a worthy fight. And is the Supreme Court the only level of federal courts which need to be reformed? No. Not every case ends up at the Supreme Court. A lot of cases are decided at the lower level, at the lower appellate level. And those courts have also been pretty well stacked with conservative slash Republican judges. Donald Trump successfully, with Mitch McConnell, successfully confirmed over 200 judges to the lower courts. That's a third of the entire judiciary. And there are some circuits that have no Democratic appointees on them at all. They're all Republican in those circuits. If you live in one of those circuits and you're seeking justice for a harm that was done to you, 
very unlikely that you'll succeed if you're going up in front of a Trump judge who has his marching orders from conservative dark money interests who are laser focused on overturning Roe and gutting the Voting Rights Act and all of those things. So how can my listeners support your work? The best thing to do is go to indivisible.org. You can find a group to join as we kind of go through the rest of the year and into next year. We're going to be trying to maximize as much advocacy as we can do while we have the chance. The courts are going to continue to be a problem. And this is really an issue that should become central, I think, to all of the decisions that we make about who we vote for in the future, who we vote for in 2024. We can no longer just let Republicans decide what happens to the courts. This really needs to become a central issue for all of us because everything we care about ends up in front of the Supreme Court. Eventually, all of the kind of core progressive issues that we care the most about are at risk as long as the conservatives have control of the courts. So indivisible.org. So sad that those issues are considered progressive issues and not just human issues. The access to the ballot is considered a political issue is actually very deeply disturbing. And what you can do with your body and who you can love and all of that. Tell me what gives you hope. You know, what gives me hope is just talking to the folks in our movement. It's difficult. What I do is really hard and working on democracy is really difficult because I haven't had a win in years. But I think the silver lining of the situation we're in now is that people, when things go wrong, people pay attention. And when people pay attention and get angry, things change. And so we really are on the precipice of being able to build something in this country that couldn't even have conceived of years ago. And I don't necessarily think things need to get worse before they get better. But the situation we're in right now is that only good things can come from where we are now. And the people that are involved in this movement who wake up every day and fight to vote and fight to protect women who are seeking abortions and all that stuff, it's really heartening to be in a movement full of people like that. And I just know that there's more of us than there are of them. And so we're going to win. It's just going to take some time. And really fighting for democracy, I think, is the privilege, right? We're so blessed that we get to do this work. Megan Hatcher Mays, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. I think we need to fix the Supreme Court. They are no longer uh, public servants in the way that we have always imagined them to be. The courts have become yet another battlefield. The conversation around judicial reform really started outside the 2020 nominating process, but it's moved inside pretty quickly. It was really a reaction to the last two uh, Supreme Court appointments by President Trump and, and real concern among liberal activists that this meant for a generation the court is going to be lost. There's going to be a sustained conservative majority. The courts have to be the last bastion of our democracy. By their very design, they are supposed to be non-political, non-partisan, and serving only the Constitution. But they are not. It's been the express goal of Mitch McConnell and the extreme right to fill the courts with partisan operatives who will help ensure the Republicans have not only the ability to enact their extreme political agenda, but also a court system which ensures they will remain in power indefinitely. The courts need to be fixed. They need to expand to reflect the expansion in the American population. Justices need to be term limited so that a power-hungry executive and Senate can't affect 
Americans' generations after they have exited the scene. And this isn't about politics. Fixing the courts is about protecting the very soul of our nation. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.